In a recent book uh, called Faith for Exiles, David Kinnaman and Mark Malloch looked at what separates young people who grew up in the church and remained actively engaged in their faith and those who grew up in the church but left their faith entirely. And one of the things they noticed, they called this group that hung on to their faith, they call this group resilient disciples. And one of the things that makes a difference with uh, and turns out a resilient disciple versus someone who is younger and leaves their faith when they leave high school is that the resilient disciples felt a far greater joy and a far greater closeness to God than those who left. Those who left, religion was just kind of like a punch the card. It was like a check the box thing you do. It was more of a Christian culture versus a relationship with God. Those that hung into their faith felt like they were tied into a relationship with Jesus that they couldn't let go. And those were the people they called in this book the resilient disciples. So the question for us becomes this, what makes a resilient disciple? What helps us stay so connected to Jesus that what comes out is this life-giving relationship that we could never ever imagine leaving And the thing that produces a resilient disciple, according to this book, is an abiding, close, rich, deep relationship with the Son of God. And today we're going to look at a foundational piece that gives us that. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Mark chapter 7. If you have an electronic Bible, you can turn it on to Mark. I'm using the Christian Standard Bible version. If you have a paper Bible and you're kind of new to the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The New Testament starts with the book of Matthew. It's about three-quarters of the way through. And the second book in the New Testament is Mark. And I'll be in Mark chapter 7. And in this text, we're going to look at three encounters that people have with Jesus. Three interactions that take place between Jesus and these people. And the first people that Jesus interacts with in this text is the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the Jewish leaders and the church leaders of the day. Before Jesus came on the scene, they were the ones controlling everything. They were the leaders of the church. People looked up to them. They were kind of untouchable. They were, there's a big separation of authority between a common person and the Pharisees. So let's begin and look at the first five verses of Mark chapter 7. It says the Pharisees, this group, and some of the scribes who were kind of in that same group, who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, being gathered around Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing keeping the tradition of the elders. That's key. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? The thing you need to know about Pharisees is that Pharisees were obsessed with following their laws. They're obsessed with following their laws. There's the laws that God put forth in the Ten Commandments, laws that he established on the human race and said, here's how you're going to relate to me. 
But what the Pharisees did is they took those laws that God gave and they added laws to them. They added laws to make sure they wouldn't break those laws. And at first that sounds like a great idea. But years go by and years go by and years go by and they add more laws and more laws and more laws. And all of a sudden, the laws that they established drowned out the laws that God first established when he talked about how the human race should relate to him. In fact, people started following these man-made religious laws the Pharisees put into place and it took joy out of a relationship with God. It made it all about the punch card. It became the main focus instead of what God wanted to be the focus. It put a burden on God's people, and Jesus took them to task on that. Let's continue reading at verse 6. He answered them, this is Jesus speaking, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. It is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, they honored God in a fake way with all these rules they established by saying, look at how great I am, I followed all these rules, but their heart was far from God. And God is about the heart. Jesus says a relationship with God must be about the heart, and he quotes Isaiah illustrating what you've done is you've drifted from what was intended. Look at verse 7. They worship me in vain, so their worship isn't real. They teach as doctrines human commands, meaning they take what was meant to be the law of God to relate, and they've blown that off. Instead, they teach their own law as what should happen. And in doing so, look at verse 8. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. Their laws, their traditions, their ways, and their minds superseded that which God first intended on how they're supposed to live. You see, the Pharisees were obsessed with the look of living for God, but their hearts were very far from God. And Jesus called them hypocrites because they talked about honoring God. But the truth is their hearts were not in it. They did not honor God with their lives. To them, following God was about a public scorecard that they could keep, that they could create to show people how religious they looked so that the power distance would continue. They weren't following God. They took the a shell of following God and recreated it to make what they wanted it to be. And Jesus points out the fact, this is what you're doing. He's saying it's a sham. He's saying it is fake. It is not real Christianity. He's saying this is not what the Father had in mind. He goes on, look at verse 9 to 13. He also said to them, you have a fine way of, check this out, invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. Invalidating what God put into place by creating all these extra laws that you did. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what, whatever benefit you might have, received from me is Corbin, that is an offering devoted to God. We'll get into that in a second. You no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition. You nullify. You make irrelevant. You circumvent the word of God by these traditions you handed down. 
And you do many other similar things. See, Jesus is coming at him saying, you're painting a Christianity that isn't real. You're painting a way of following God that is not how I intended it. And the thing is, we can do the same exact thing. So many times for us, following God is about being part of a certain culture. We come in and we go to church. We go through these motions. We punch our scorecard. And what Jesus is saying is the heart of that is wrong. That's not following God at all. It's not this external thing that we do to make sure we're moving forward. You totally miss the point. Jesus mentions this thing in verse 11 called Corbin. And this thing called Corbin was an idea where the people, if they really wanted to follow God with all their heart, if they really wanted to grow close to Him, they would devote a part of their possessions and they would call it Corbin, meaning these, these possessions, this time, this energy is devoted to God. But what happened in, in and of itself is a great practice. But what happened is the Pharisees took that and added their laws to it. And they said, here's how you have to do that. And they did it in a way that would benefit them, frankly, not really be a devotion to God. And so what would happen is someone who would be younger would say, I'm going to de dedicate all my future wealth to Corbin, to God. And the Pharisees would say, well, then you are not allowed to touch any of your future wealth. So when their parents would age and become sick and couldn't work and had need, they were, had no way to use the income they had to help their parents, so their parents would remain sick and die. See, that is not the heart of God. And what Jesus is saying is you create a law that contradicts what God really wants us to do, and that is to love others, namely also our mother and father, but your laws prevent that. You see how perverted you've become. You've taken what is on God's heart, and with all these extra laws you add to it, you've taken us 180 away from what God's heart was, which is to love other people. That's what he was getting at here. He's saying you missed the point, and he brought up that command in Exodus 20:12 to show that. Their traditions were not supporting the heart of God. They were not supporting the commands of God. In fact, they were contradicting what God wanted. And you know what? It made Jesus angry. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus like this mild-mannered person that doesn't... Jesus got angry. And he got angry when people started messing with how you relate to God. Because there's already enough barriers between us and God, and you don't need to add more to it. And it affected his heart. And he said something huge is at stake here. And the issue that was at stake is this, how a person is saved from their sins and brought into a relationship with God was constantly being questioned when the Pharisees and Jesus would interact when he was on earth. There was this constant questioning about one of the most critical things ever, and that is how a person is saved from their sins and brought into a relationship with God. And how that happens is the core of the Christian message. The heart of the gospel is how we relate to God. And it was a central conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Look at verses 14 to 20. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him. 
But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. See, Jesus is saying, you're all worried about like going in a world and being tainted by their sin. That actually has nothing to do because sin resides in the heart of a person because of their sinful nature. And what comes out of a person's heart is what makes them unclean, not what they touch and experience in the outside. Verse 17, when he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person, what comes without, out of their heart, their sinful nature, is what defiles them. And then he goes to describe what comes out of people's hearts. Verse 21, from within, out of people's hearts, comes and he nails them all. Evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, slander, pride, and foolishness. I don't think if you come up with any sin, it would fit in one of those categories. I don't think you'd come up with one that doesn't. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. You see, Jesus is always going after the heart. He's always going after the core of a human being. He's always going after what resides underneath the surface because he knows if you address that, it doesn't matter what happens on the outside because a heart transformed by the power and the grace of God can go anywhere on the outside and maintain that place of worship. The conflict that Jesus had with the, or the Pharisees can be summed up in a question. Who is God and what is he like? Who is God and what is he like? And to the Pharisees, God is a person they needed to please with their traditions. And the only way to be in relationship with God is to completely fulfill their traditions. Do you see, we can do that same exact thing in church in the United States in 2021. We can set up what we think is this way to follow God. And we begin to follow the concept in our head of what it means and we realize before long there's no life in that. That it's too hard. And I think this is what's happening with our young people who come into church and leave. They come in and they don't really encounter the real person of Jesus Christ. They encounter a bunch of rules. They encounter a culture. They encounter something that feels so outdated. Something that feels so foreign to where they are. And so when the minute they're on their own, they jettison that because who would want that? But when a young person gets it right, when they fall and realize what God is like and who he is, that in Jesus' perspective, that God is a gracious father willing to forgive sinners, and the only way to be in relationship with him is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when that light bulb goes on, and it's no longer about following a culture or rules or a punch card. And now it's about a living, active, dynamic relationship with the Son of God, the creator of the universe, who has all power in his hand, who gives me new life and transforms my heart day in and day out. Now I'll live for that. That's something. And that's what Jesus was getting at with these Pharisees. He's saying you're leading people down the wrong path. This is who I am. This is the gospel. This is so critically important that as Christians we understand this. 
that our standing with God is not based on what we do. It's not based on how we follow. It's not based on how hard we obey. But our standing with God is solely based in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did. And that thought messed with the Pharisees. Just like it messes with people today that want to impose rules instead of a relationship. It challenged everything the Pharisees stood for. For the Pharisees to follow Jesus' teachings and what he was saying, it would mean a huge shift in how they viewed God. And sometimes the same is true for us. We can make relating to God like this scorecard we keep or a scorecard that people put on us. But here's the deal. You never ever win at that game. You know why you don't win at that game? Because the Bible tells us clearly that if you want to obey yourself into a relationship with God, if you want to follow rules into a relationship with God and make that the basis, the end result has to be perfection. The Bible says to relate to God, you have to be absolutely sinlessly perfect. So that means all the things you do you have to do perfectly. The Bible says clearly to have a relationship with God, to go to heaven, you have to be absolutely perfect. Now, some of you are cringing right now, just like I would be cringing right now, because you're not perfect. And you probably didn't need me to tell you that. And guess what? I'm not perfect. And so there's this huge problem. Because if to be in relationship with God and go to heaven requires absolute sinless perfection and we don't have that, what do we do? In comes Jesus Christ. You see, we need a perfection outside of ourselves. We will never, ever, ever, ever be able to generate a perfection that's strong enough to merit ourselves into the presence of a holy God. And so why try? And the Pharisees were trying to get people to do this, and we do this today by following all these religious rules. We adapt a Pharisee mindset, but we will never, ever create a perfection strong enough. We need a stronger perfection, and Martin Luther called it a foreign perfection, a righteousness that comes from outside of us, and it's the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came to earth, and he lived sinless perfection. He didn't sin once. He lived a way so that a person can relate to God. And then he went to the cross. And on the cross, not only did he pay for our sin and pay for the penalty of our sin, but in that exchange of what happened on the cross, he took his righteous perfection and how he lived. And if you give your life to him, he takes that and he clothes you in his perfection. So that when you give your life to him, you are now standing before a holy God, not on your merits, not on your punch card, not on your record, but you're standing before the record of sinless perfection that's found in Jesus Christ. And God the Father says, I can relate with that. You see, that's the gospel. That's how we have relationship with God. So why on earth would we go backwards and try to live out a relationship with God based on a bunch of rules? It's about relationship. It's about Jesus and what he did for us. Mark gives us another picture to drive this home. And in this, he tells a story about a very wise woman. A very wise woman. Look at verses 24 to 30. He said, he got up, talking about Jesus, he got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. 
He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. So what this is saying is Jesus left this very Jewish area of geography and he went to an extremely non-Jewish area of geography. He went to an area that was so far from following God in the Jewish ways as you can get, and he went there to take his disciples into a quiet place and teach them, but that didn't happen because people heard about all that he did, and they followed him, and they wanted to relate to him. So instead of doing that, immediately after hearing about him, verse 25, a woman whose little, little daughter had an unclean spirit, that's a demon, came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the little children be fed first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. This reply revealed something in this woman's heart. And when she went back to her home, she found her child laying on the bed, and the demon was gone. There's an exchange that happens with this woman and Jesus. We have to unpack it a little to understand what's happening. This is a story about a very wise woman who is at the end of her rope. And after Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he went to this very non-Jewish area, and in comes this woman and her roots ran deep here, which means her ancestors hated God and did not want to follow him at all. They had nothing to do with him. In fact, the Old Testament prophets probably prophesied against her ancestors' actions and attitudes of their heart. And now Mark uses this point to bring about a total contrast. The Pharisees wouldn't have given this woman the time of day, but Jesus did. And like any parent, her daughter who was going through major suffering, she would do whatever it took to bring relief. Mark says she comes in and immediately fell at Jesus' feet, which is a sign of respect and deep sorrow in that culture. And if you look at the verb uh, in the original language in verse 26, where it says she asked, the verb is in the continual sense, meaning that she asked and asked and asked and asked. She didn't stop asking. Matthew, another New Testament writer, writes about this story too in Matthew 15. And he says that the woman cried out from a distance. And then when she didn't get what she wants, she stayed and she kept crying out. So if we put these two accounts together, what happened is this woman came in, fell at Jesus' feet, acknowledged who he is, begged that her daughter would be healed. He made this comment that it sounded like he was rejecting her, but we're going to unpack that in a minute. She got up and she didn't leave. She turned around and she kept asking and asking and asking, and then something profound happens. Jesus didn't grant her request right away because he had a plan that he wanted to illustrate through this process. One of the things Mark is contrasting here is this woman didn't have any of the religious qualifications the Pharisees did, and she still gets it right. You see, the message of Jesus coming into your life and transforming your heart is a simple message. It's not easy, but it's simple. And this woman grabbed it. Jesus loved Gentiles. Jesus loves all people. 
He loves the Jewish people and he loves the non-Jewish people. And there's many, many, many stories of him touching, healing, empowering non-Jewish people, which is a really good thing because last time I checked, none of us here are Orthodox Jewish people. And so this is a message that speaks to us. Jesus wanted to save them all. The Jewish people would refer to the non-Jewish people with using a Greek word for dog. In the Greek language, there's several words that have different meanings for the same thing. So there's four or five different words for dog. The dog word that the Jewish people used to describe non-Jewish people meant the stray dog that would hang out in dumps that no one cared about and everyone wanted them just to be gone. That's what the Jewish people would call non-Jewish people. When Jesus here says, it's not right to take the children's bread, referring to the Jewish people, and throw it to the dogs, he's playing off of that, but he's not using the same word. He's not talking about the dog that's the stray. He's talking about the dog that's the household pet. And so he's bringing about this idea that, hey, woman, you could be included in this. That my love and my power and my message isn't just for the Jewish people, but now we're starting to expand and take it out to the world, and you could be a part of that. And as he's dialoguing in Greek with this woman in the street vernacular of the day, using their kind of idioms and their analogies, she picks up on it and responds back in a way that shows she gets it. She says, but even the dogs under the table get the children's crumbs. We can be part of this. You see, Jesus entered the world as a Jewish person. It was prophesied that a Messiah would come through the Jewish line that would save all people for their sins. Not just Jewish people, but all people. But it would start with the Jewish people. And if you look at his ministry, it began, as we saw it in Mark, in the synagogues. Now he's taking it to the streets. He's moving out to what he wants. He wants to take it to the whole world. And we see in this text, this woman gets it. He enters into the world they are in and then switches the right theology. And the woman's response is so insightful because not only does it express her heart as a woman and a mom who cares for a kid, but it also signifies the mission of Jesus Christ and what he's all about. She points out the heart of God, that God is big enough and his grace is great enough to break all boundaries and barriers. God is more than enough for every human need. And by saying it the way she did, she was acknowledging, Jesus, you are the source of all life. And you are the only one who can bring about this to happen. She was acknowledging what he was like. This was something the Pharisees could not do. This woman had insight, determination, wit, humility, and most of all, she had faith. She trusted in who God was. Now, I need to explain that because there's a lot of confusion today in the American church about faith. Faith is not if I believe hard enough, I get anything I want. And you hear people say, oh, I'll believe in that. I'll believe in that. I'll believe in that. It's almost like this genie in a bottle that if I, if I psych myself up enough to believe in it, then it will come true. That's not biblical faith. That's not what this woman had. This woman wasn't saying, I have enough faith to believe he'll heal my daughter, he'll heal my daughter, he'll... That's not what happened here. 
Her faith had an object, and real faith has to have an object. Faith isn't there just for faith's sake. Faith has to have an object, and her faith had the object of Jesus Christ. She was saying, I believe, not that my daughter is going to get healed, not that I'm going to get this, not that I'm going to, I believe that you are who you say you are, Jesus. I believe you are the Son of God, and I trust that you can do anything you said you, can, you will do. That's where her faith was. That's what it was about. The object of her faith was Jesus. Having faith is coming to our God, believing that he is who he says he is, and believing he will do what he says he will do. See, some people hold Jesus to do things that he never promised to do. And they think, if I just believe hard enough, I can get whatever I want. That's not faith. Faith is believing in who he is and believing what he promised that, to do and knowing that he will do everything he promised. When you see people in the New Testament, that's the faith they have. They don't have this faith that they're going to believe for something so they can get anything they want. Their faith is a trust in who Jesus is. Their faith is a trust that he is the son of God. Their faith is believing in Jesus more fully, which takes us to the last person I want to talk about this morning, and that's the resilient disciple. The resilient disciple places their trust, faith, in Jesus as the basis for their relationship with him, not following a list of rules. Their trust is only in Jesus and what he did for them on the cross. We take our theology lesson from the woman, not from the Pharisees. It's not about the theological scorecard. It's about knowing who Jesus is. And we place our trust and our faith for our salvation with our whole hearts in Jesus. That's what this passage is all about. The Pharisees felt like you needed to behave in a godly way, and that's what saves you. That's not the gospel. A resilient disciple knows that God's grace saves you and you are moved by that love and grace to live a holy life. See, so many times people say, well, if it's not about following the rules, where does the following the rules part come in? Does that mean I just pray this prayer and I do whatever I want? Absolutely not. The rules, the holy life is the outpouring of a true, authentic person who says, I want to follow God. Because when you authentically come and say, I want to follow Jesus Christ, and you ask him into your life, you're empowered by this love and this grace and this mercy in such a way you can do no other, you have no other choice but to live out what God wants you to live out. And it's lived out by an empowering of his love, an empowering of his grace, an empowering of his mercy, not checking a box on a scorecard. You follow the rules because he changed your heart and you're captured by your love for him and out of your love for him, you want to obey. Obedience follows the decision. It's not that you obey so you come into relationship with God. It's because you're in relationship with God, you're empowered to obey. That's where the rule part comes in. That's why we sing hymns that say, love so amazing, so divine, demands not request, demands my life, my soul, and my all. When I encounter this kind of love, when I encounter love that transforms and forgives my sin and gives me new life, when I encounter that kind of God, it, the only right response is that I give my soul, my all, 100% of all I am to that. That's gospel-infused Christianity. That's what Jesus wants us to live 
The resilient disciple knows that God's grace saves you and their trust is only in him and on the cross. You see, the Pharisees thought you had to follow these rules to behave and Jesus said, no, that's not it at all. Do you see the difference? Isn't it interesting that the key to following God in a relationship with him is trust? Trusting who he is and what he's done? That trust, as we know in our human relationships, is the pillar of any strong, vital relationship? God created this thing, and this is what it is. It's a trust in who he is. So what does this look like? This week I was reading a quote by Martin Luther that said this. This is how a person becomes a Christian. The Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son stir, awaken, call, and beget. Beget is an ancient word meaning bring forth. They stir, they awaken, they call and beget me and all who are is. This is saying you want to know how you become a, a Christian? All of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins to stir begins to awaken, begins to call this desire in your heart to follow Jesus. So my question for you this morning is, has this happened to you? Have you ever sensed this awakening, this stirring, this calling to get closer to Jesus Christ? If you have, lean into that. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you closer to God and saying, I want to have a relationship with you. Follow that. If you've never experienced that, then get on your knees and ask him for that. Say, God, will you move in my heart that I may know who you are? Will you stir? Will you awaken? Will you call me? If you sense that happening, do not resist, but give your life to Jesus Christ. And the way you do that, the Bible says there's two things you have to do. One is you repent, meaning you turn from your sin and your way of living, and you turn and follow God. The second thing you do is you believe. Repent and believe. And it's not just an intellectual belief. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It's a believing into him. It's saying you are who you are. And because you are who you are, I will give you all my life. You see, it sounds like faith because it is. Belief and faith is the same thing. You will give all you are to Christ because of who he is. That's the belief part. And if you repent and believe, you begin a new life with God. If you're ever asked... How does a person get into heaven and have eternal life? The answer is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you've never invited Christ into your life, before you let your head hit the pillow tonight, have a talk with him and invite him in. And if you feel that stirring, that calling, that begetting, that starting forward, respond to that. And tell him you want to live for him. This past week, I was kind of reviewing my life with God, and I realized that it kind of dawned on me that I've been at this thing, following Jesus very imperfectly, I say to you, very imperfectly for 35 years. And so I said, and I looked at all the faithful ways that God brought me to know who he is. And he walked with me even though my actions were imperfect for these 35 years. And at the end of it, I just had a prayer where I said, God, I just want to renew my life to you again. I want to give my life to you again. I want to grow deeper in my knowledge of you. I want to grow deeper in my love for you. I want to grow deeper in who you are. And I encourage you, if you've been at this 
and you are a Christian and you've given your life to him, recommit your life again. Because the greatest thing is this, throughout that 35 years of imperfection, when I sin and I blow it and I do, I can go back and I ask forgiveness, but my relationship with God is not shattered because it's held by something greater than my performance. It's held by the absolute perfection and grace of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Our relationship with Christ is held together by what Jesus did on the cross, not how we perform. And so when we blow it, which we will, we faithfully repent and ask forgiveness of God, but he still holds us if your heart belongs to him. The key to being a resilient disciple is to have a deep, abiding friendship with Jesus, this awe-inspiring, all-powerful, almighty Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Son. And we thank you that he crosses all culture, he crosses all barriers, because that's your heart. God, I pray that what's on your heart would reflect in our hearts. God, I just ask that you would, as people of Crossview Church and and beyond, that you would stir us, that you would awaken us, that we wouldn't be like the Pharisees who take Christian religion as a box to check that there's just no life there it's dead god will you help us to open our eyes of our hearts to see who you are and how you call us to be in relationship with you and that brings life and meaning and joy and purpose god let us live in that place and do whatever you have to do to move us from one to the other and we ask this in jesus name amen please stand